Hi, I'm Carissa Schlott. And I am Sharice Schlott. Welcome to Between Between Us, a podcast that highlights our relationship as sisters, providing a safe space to share our stories. These conversations highlight unity and connection, the through lines that connect all of us as human beings. Before we dive in, we would like to highlight that the views expressed in each episode are a product of our own research and experiences. Our opinions are not representative of any professional affiliations we may have. Episode 22. All that we are is story. From the moment we are born to the time we continue on our spirit journey, we are involved in the creation of the story of our time here. Richard Wagamisi. Welcome back, everyone. It's a new year, 2024. Same us, just a little bit older and hopefully a little bit wiser. We're starting the new year off with a soulful episode. We had a lot of fun recording this, so hopefully that's evident to you as a listener. So we bring to you Roselle M. Gonzalez. Roselle has been writing for as long as she can remember. Journals, blogs, and overly long Instagram captions, all written wondering if anyone was listening. She believes in the transformative power of storytelling as a bridge to empathy and community. Knowing what it feels like to not belong, Roselle has built a professional career in the field of systemic inclusion, committed to amplifying voices in the margins of cultural narratives. She is currently the head of inclusion and reconciliation at ATB Financial. In 2022, Roselle was named one of Edmonton's top 40 under 40 for her career achievements. Roselle loves long-form journalism podcasts, tattoos, and spicy chicken curry. Together with her partner, Dustin, Roselle now makes her home in Porter's Lake, Nova Scotia, a beautiful storied place on the ocean's edge. Although not included in her bio, Roselle joins us to speak about her recently released biographical novel, The Ordinary Turn Precious. And now, the conversation with Roselle. As the days grow shorter, winter solstice approaches, a time for animals, plants, and people to rest and replenish our spirits. Last night, I was visualizing the winter cold like a blanket that puts autumn to sleep. While I was cozied indoors under a warm, fuzzy blanket of my own, my body melting into the couch and my eyes flickering like the candle lit in front of me. Falling in and out of sleep, I felt relaxed and at peace in my winter cocoon. In Indigenous cultures, winter solstice is a time to honor the natural cycles and patterns, a season of medicine for our bodies and spirits. Today, Roselle is joining from Mi'kma'ki, the traditional and unceded lands of the Mi'kmaq people, also known as Halifax. The people of the Mi'kmaq nation have lived on this territory for millennia, and we acknowledge them as the past, present, and future caretakers of this land. Charisse and I are joining from Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, which includes Blackfoot Confederacy members, Siksika, Bakani, and the Kainai First Nations, the Stony Nakoda of Bearspaw, Chiniki and Wesley First Nations, the Dene of Sutina First Nations, the Métis Nation Region 3, and all those who made Treaty 7 lands their home. The name Okotoks comes from the Blackfoot word Okotok, which means big rock, referring to the large boulder located just west of the present day town site. This rock has been a significant landmark of the Blackfoot peoples as they travel through their traditional territory. Today, a land acknowledgement remains a way to express one's gratitude to the Indigenous peoples for being stewards of the land that we live on and work on, the land that nourishes us, and the land on which we gather for this podcast recording today. Welcome, Roselle. 
Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here. And I'm so grateful to have my new home and its territory acknowledged in that, you know, opening. I've never actually been part of a conversation while living here. It's been very short time that I've lived here. And so I'm truly grateful to hear those words spoken in my own acknowledgement of gratitude for, for my life on this land. Beautiful. Well, Sharice and I have both been blessed with the opportunity to read your book, Mm -hmm. your memoir, The Ordinary Made Precious. And when I started reading your book, I have to say that I was stopped in my tracks on the very first page (laughs) because reading your foreword caused a flood of compassion for myself, for you, and this feeling of interconnectedness throughout my entire body. Because to me, it speaks so clearly to who you are in a very few short sentences. It reads... This story is the truth as I remember it. All the interactions and conversations contained in these pages occurred through names and identifying details of most living individuals have been anonymized or changed. Speaking my truth while also honoring my commitment to not perpetuate harm has been an intentional act of compassion, both towards myself and others. Uh, Mm. To me, that just speaks to who you are as a person that even in sharing your own story, you're thinking of others. Thank you for that, Carissa. It was uh, important for me to recognize. I love that you use the language of interconnectedness because we are not just individuals. We are so much more because of who we are connected to. One of my favorite phrases in the whole world is, we live as long as the last person that tells our stories. Hmm. I truly believe that. We live in the minds and stories of other people as well. And so if my commitment to living a good life has to include the good life of everybody that I am also connected to and who is connected to me. Hmm. That's really beautiful. And I just want to clarify, the title is Ordinary Turned Precious. I think you said Made Precious, but that's okay. I just wanted to clarify that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious, since this was such a personal journey and a labor of love, is there a difference between writing your book and writing your story and then coming to speak about it? Yes, very much so. And I didn't think that there would be. And so I would even say that writing my story was a very different process than reading my story or Mm -hmm. or editing my story. Writing my story almost felt like an extension of having lived my story. And reading my story meant that I started thinking of the Roselle in the book as Roselle. Like I I literally Mm -hmm. would call it Roselle, um, not, you know, me in this chapter, because it felt like now she lives on that page. But now that I've been, you know, the book's been out a week, I've been talking to folks and, you know, having these meaningful conversations, she now no longer just lives on that page. She now also lives in the reader, in the person that has picked up that book. And so talking about the story in some ways is me, the living present day person, now also having to honor the version of me that lives in both of you who have read it. Mm, Beautiful. Yeah, it's such a personal and cathartic process while you're writing. And then once it's out, it's released. And then it's on a life of its own. Exactly. That's really cool. So thanks for flattering me with that question. Well, and what struck me as a theme throughout that book, not only is that interconnectedness and intersectionality and one of belonging and our journeys home to ourself, but also an integration of the parts of ourself. So now having a book that is, of course, all of the parts of you within those pages, and also now something to your point that is creating experiences inside of others. I'd love for you to share a bit about your journey of self-integration in writing the book and also 
how that's playing into the journey now? Hmm. Yeah, I love the language of integration. And thank you for that question, because I almost feel like the year that it took me to write the book or to bring the book to life. So, you know, from the day I, I said, okay, I think I want to put a book out into the world to the day I put out a book into the world. It was almost exactly one year. And the theme of that year was integration in many different ways. And I think, you know, the, the book itself is sectioned off kind of into about three parts, which, which some, you know, past, present, future tape zooming in and out. But in so many ways, those three parts of me were a very intentional deep dive into those versions of me that some things I no longer connect to, some things I no longer recognize. And then some things are, oh yeah, okay, I see where that, I see where that part of me came from. And so putting them kind of all together side by side. And you know, the journey of writing a book is that you write maybe like 200% and then you have to whittle it down to yeah. tell the story you really do want to tell. And so I really had to focus in on these three sections. And it was really difficult in certain places for me to forgive myself mm. for the earlier versions of me yeah. that I now, sitting you know, from a vantage place of 10, 15, 20 years removed, would have done things differently, would have liked mm. to have done things from a more healed or integrated place. And so I held a lot of sort of irritation at mm. that version of me. I remember this one time, you know, I was I was uh, writing about being a teenager. I was writing about being in my early 20s. And I was so judgy of that version of me. And I remember doing something where I said, you know, that age group, so sort of like, I don't know, 16, ever since I got my driver's license to maybe my early 20s, all I really wanted to drive was a Jeep, like a Jeep Wrangler. <laughs> this is not a story in the book, but it's just an insight into kind of the process. And so because I was writing about her, writing about me rather, kind of at that phase of my life, I thought, you know what, I'm going to go out and rent this car that this girl really wanted and never kind of, that was not a thing that, you know, became part of my reality. I said, okay, I'm going to go rent this car. And so I went and rented the car and I took it for this long drive on the highway. And my friends... A Jeep Wrangler on a highway is not a sensible car for a grown woman to drive. <laughs> I just thought, what a foolish young lady to have wanted this stupid car. It does not take me home. I want my comfortable SUV or like my pickup truck that's about to arrive. I didn't want this Jeep Wrangler. But I held so much annoyance mm -hmm. with the fact that she would be so foolish or she would have had these like wishy-washy because every 21-year-old is wishy-washy. Mm -hmm. You know, I often say like, I wish I knew as much as I thought I did when I was 21. I thought I knew everything. And so I held so much kind of annoyance and I was like, I wish she would have grown up faster. But sitting with those three versions of myself, I think I start the book and I think I was about 20 maybe 22, 23, and then, you know, five years later, and then five years later. And sitting with those three very distinct versions of myself, watching her growth, honoring her experiences, really allowed me to honor that me today, even though I'm 15, 20 years removed, wouldn't be who I am if she wasn't who she was. Yes. And so releasing that annoyance into a recognition of her story, her journey, and then honoring that she existed so that I might thrive. Yes, yeah. yes. I can so relate to that. I'm sure you can uh -huh. too, Krissa. We had this very conversation. I'm into internal family systems, which is 
parts theories, right? So there's all these parts of ourselves. And so Chris and I were talking and she, we were talking about the teenage self. And I said, it's also complicated for me because I come at that from a very judgmental place. But it's also because of the lens that I was being perceived at at that time from the outside world as well. So I have a very institutionalized um, view of my teenage self. And so I'm wondering in your story too, just having an understanding of the way your family worked and some of the messaging you received, I'm sure some of the way you're viewing your teenage self was colored by how Mm. others were viewing you. Yeah, I think that's so true for so many of us. For a very long time as young people, as children, we are in a place of being dependent on people who know more than us, who have better skills than us, have more resources than us. And so we have this idea of authority as both universally good and universally right. Yes. Mm-hmm. And what that means is we end up maybe putting our own sense of like our moral compass or our sense of self kind of a little bit to the side because we want to, we want to know that the people who are right are right. Right. It's living kind of in the, in those congruent spaces. And for most people, most children who have healthy adults and healthy reflections of themselves and are told versions of themselves that are true. I think that you end up becoming a combination, a reflection of, your internal mechanisms, as well as what your people around you are telling you. Absolutely. And I think that in spaces where there has maybe been rupture or there maybe has been a separation between or a space that has been created between what your moral authority figures around you are saying and what you perhaps internally believe to be true, that middle space can become really confusing. Yes. And so for myself, I think I perhaps in my development didn't have enough opportunities to start trusting my own sense of self. So my sense of self became voiced by and narrated by the perceptions and the voices of the people around me in many ways. Yes. A lot longer actually to disintegrate my sense of self from their sense of me and reintegrate perhaps between my sense of self and who I would like to be in this world. Yes. And I want to honor that's not an easy process. Same with me, the amount of work I've done. My initial reaction to that part that shows up is judgment. That just comes up. And then I have to stop and be like, oh, whoa, let's take a second here. That's not necessarily in my voice. Yes. And then I have to kind of undo that a little bit, but I have to pause. Yeah. And turn towards that part with some compassion. Exactly. Right. Like all of those lenses or parts of ourselves are a part of ourselves. Yes. So I want to know, Roselle, how you have cultivated that compassion on your journey, not only for others, but for yourself. (sighs) I'll maybe answer in two ways, Carissa, because you you talked about others. I think it is so much easier for me and perhaps most people who are heart forward and empathetic Mm -hmm. to hold compassion for (laughs) those outside ourselves. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? Like we are full of generosity. We are full of that space and grace for other people to exist in their fullness, even if that means that they have crunchy bits, even if that means that they were infuriating, like they went and rented a Jeep or whatever that was, right? Like we have space for that. And I think for ourselves, I like the phrase, we should all over ourselves, right? You should do this, do that. And so having space and compassion for others has perhaps always been 
central to how I live in the world. And that is something that, you know, I've, I've known about myself. Even I have a very big heart. I tend to want to give, I will rather have no food on my plate and know that somebody else is fed or have, you know, less money in my bank account, but know that somebody else has enough resources. And so the others part of the compassion, I want to say comes easier, but I also think that Sometimes those of us that are heart-led and empathetic use that as an excuse to not have to turn inwards with that compassion. Mm, Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And turning inwards with that compassion is, it's every day. It is not a one and done. It is not, I finished the book and so therefore I've reached the mountaintop of that journey. (laughs) It is an every single day, you know, you get, you get more practice, the more practice you have. And so if there's a particularly, you know, squirrely piece of, uh, of a thought that's happening for me, now I know to kind of approach a little bit with curiosity. And so I've learned Mm -hmm. phrases. So I'll say, okay, Whose voice is that? What is that rooted in? Mm -hmm. But it's also required me to ask for compassion. And what that Mm -hmm. means, because I know that it's easier to give compassion to other people, it means that I've asked the community of people that are around me, my, you know, inner sanctum of trusted people to say, hey, when I'm in need of compassion and I'm really hard on myself, can I trust you to hold that space for me? And so when I know that I'm beating myself up about something, I will go to my my inner circle and say, this is what I'm struggling with. And inevitably, they hold up this mirror of compassion that I can benefit from and have benefited and healed from. And so compassion isn't it isn't a thing I do alone. It isn't a thing that I do by myself, but it is a thing that I have done for myself by letting others in. Mm, That's really beautiful. So many thoughts are going through my head at this moment, but something I think I've had to almost do, I hear my, also my therapist voice in my head saying like, but that teenage part was so savvy and, Mm. and in many ways was wise because it was in a very complicated situation without the skills or the, the words or the language, it found a creative way to survive in that system. Yes. And so I have to always think about that. Like, okay, this this part has some wisdom there. It has some creativity and some innovation. Yes, I agree. And you know what? I've been posed that same question of, you know, what was that version of you or that part of you trying to protect you from? Or what was that mm-hmm. version of you or that part of you trying to do for you in that moment? And it always comes up with a multifaceted response, which is that, I've had to honor the ways in which I survived certain situations or uh, allowed myself to move through certain situations while keeping myself safe or psychologically safe there. And the second question that I'm inevitably, you know, posed with is, so thank you. Thank you for doing that to keep us safe. Yeah. Maybe that's not serving me anymore. Exactly. (laughs) Releasing that. Sometimes maladaptive behaviors can now do us more harm as we're living lives that are different from where we were when we needed to be kept safe. I love that because your now self is approaching your teenage self with, again, that compassion in the way that it's giving that part what it needed. And this is saying my journey is to not just shame that part to run away because I'm like, I don't want it here. So my reaction is to be like, get the hell out of here. Right. And so 
that it's it's a it's a conscious effort to turn towards it with the nurturing and the compassion what you would have needed in that moment turn towards it period yeah to say i see you yeah see you. exactly i yeah. see you and it's okay thank you i hear you yeah like, i got it we're good yeah we're good <laughs> it's in that i got it i think that you know you're almost reparenting parts yes, of yourself yes. exactly growing that part of you back up and it's funny, I actually understood this deeply this year because I started honoring those versions of myself. And there's this story I, you know, was I was thinking about like a very young version of myself and she mm-hmm. was just precocious. Like she was just a little fighter. She had ways of like scrappy. She was just, and I love that version of myself, but she's also very, as most children are, black and white. Yes. Um, good and bad, very strong sense of fair, unfair justice. So for a little while, what I did as as an experiment, as I like to do, I said, okay, you know what? If little Roselle is feeling X, Y, or Z, well, then little Roselle is going to have my entire force behind her because I'm going to, what would I have wanted in that moment? I would have wanted to right with me at my back, pitchfork in hand, let's go. Yeah. (laughs) You know, like talking about how yesterday's tools might be maladaptive for, for who you are today, right? Yeah. And so I realized, though, that giving a younger version of myself a tool that I have as an adult is actually putting a weapon in a child's hand. Yeah. And so parenting your younger self also means giving that person, giving that version of yourself healthy boundaries, giving yes. that version of yourself healthy coping tools, because mm-hmm. a four-year-old is not going to be han- be able to handle the resources or tools of a 40-year-old. Almost like you have to be the most appropriate version of a parent to yourself, having perhaps, you know, not had that in different parts of your life when you needed to, to model that way. And so freaking nobody tells you this about growing up. I'm just... No. Never. It's so sad. (laughs) I always envision the car and who's driving. That's the analogy I use in my head because when I'm not aware of those parts, my teenage self can be driving. And now that's hella scary, to be honest. If that part's driving, I am afraid. (laughs) (laughs) Or And even like I've been trying to check in with myself throughout the day as myself and many others around me have been navigating, I would say, very turbulent waters this year with a lot of personal growth and reflection and transformation and this integration of the parts of ourselves, of our stories, of our humanity, of what's happening in the world, and this sense of disruption, the sense of something is stirring, like the world is in a state of blessed unrest, Mm -hmm. that I've had to come back to myself each day, even if it's like a point in time in the middle of my day when I have a minute to grab a drink of water and use the restroom and come back to my desk, I close my eyes and I can almost like visualize the highest version of myself, like a soul version of myself. And she's always dancing around in my brain. How she is, is an indication of how the rest of my parts are doing. Yeah. And lately it's, she's been dancing around in my, in my mind with a broom. Like she's happy and free and she's sweeping things away. And then as I follow her magic down my body into my core, I see like little Carissa, she's probably five or six. And I see teenage Carissa and I see now Carissa and I see a future self that I haven't met yet, Grandma Carissa. And they're all kind of sitting in a circle always. But depending on how I'm doing, they're either sitting and they look very tired (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, or they're also up dancing around the fire. And so if they are sitting or one of them is sitting, I'll turn to her in my mind and say, like, what do you need? 
Mm. And sometimes it's like, I need play. Or sometimes it's just, they wanted me to notice that they look tired. For me, like visualization is helpful. So I've been trying to turn inward and ask those parts what they need throughout the day, just so that I make sure that I'm honoring myself and yeah. that it's helping others. Beautiful. Yeah. I have a side thought about that too, because sure. with my parts, they can't all exist together in a way because they're very contrary and sometimes they're complete contradictions to one another, right? And so this is getting really deep into there, but it's almost like I have to sometimes find places where it's safe to send those parts <laughs> okay. to have others to allow to be present. I think this speaks to complex PTSD, like relational CPTSD, yeah. right? Not all of the parts are going to be able to exist cohesively. Mm. I just want to offer another perspective yeah. because I think some people will definitely see themselves in yours. Yeah. And I just want to honor that some people might be like, those cannot all hang out. It's like... <laughs> It's like having they a party at the same party. Yeah, yeah, a party and you can't invite all your friends because they don't all jive or something. You know, I'm so grateful, Therese, that you use the language. You use the word safe. All of my professional work is in the landscape of creating psychological safety. And we have so much language right now around, you know, bring your authentic self to work, bring your real self to work, bring your whole self to work or bring your whole self to whatever. The things that always come up for me in that is that one is it might not always be safe to bring 100%. your work. It's also actually a really wise thing to discern what parts of yourself you need to honor in each moment and bring to each moment mm-hmm. in the same way that, you know, if I were to analogize this with my like closet, for example, I have say three jackets that I love. I wouldn't think unless it was a, brutally cold day that I needed more than one jacket. I'm bringing what I need to the situation in order for me to respond to that situation. So I wouldn't wear all my clothes in one go or all my jackets in one go because it doesn't make sense for the situation. But you can go somewhere and maybe even start talking about the fact that, hey, you know, I wore the brown jacket today, but I almost chose the black jacket. So the more safety you have, the more we can tell of the different parts of ourselves. But I actually think that a journey of healing and integration doesn't mean all things everywhere all the time. It means being willing to know that you have a full toolbox and you will only take out what you need when you need it and when it's safe to do so. So I really that contrast between you know the beauty of having all yourselves kind of sitting in circle and and honoring one another which is beautiful and on the flip side you might not always have that availability because someone's going to get knocked out at that circle Um, you know holding that tension but not holding value of one is better than the other exactly bingo yes and sometimes they're indicators right like if my teenage self is driving I'm like this is telling me that there isn't environmental safety for me. Yes. Yes. So then I'm like, oh, because this part is coming out. This part is well adapted to be surviving in environments that aren't, there's not psychological safety. That's right. That's right. And so even in that moment, the fact that that younger self, I think, is is, she's telling you something. Like she's telling you how to keep yourself safe here. Yes, it's perhaps coming out in a maladaptive way or whatever. But you learning to listen to her is going to create that bridge of trust within yourself, I think. Right. And so that's part of every person's story is how do you build that trust with yourself? And some of us have longer journeys to create to trust ourselves. And some of us have 
learn to trust ourselves early on enough and we see those people as as lights and and role models and mentors and we also know that there's different like everybody's story has different parts to it different speeds to it and that's what I I love about storytelling is because when you sit kind of in this space of you know my story we talk about it we talk about pieces of it I think it creates not just sort of a this is my story and and you need to recognize my story but it's this is my story, and I hope that you recognize yourself in my story. Yes, yes. And you share about this also in the beginning of your book, where you say, all that we are is story. Mm. From the moment we are born to the time we continue on our spirit journey, we are involved in the creation of the story of our time here. It is what we arrive with. It is all we leave behind. We are not the things we accumulate. We are not the things we deem important. We are story, mm-hmm. all of us. What comes to matter then is the creation of the best possible story we can while we're here. You, me, us together. When we can do that and we take the time to share those stories with each other, we get bigger inside. We see each other. We recognize our kinship. We change the world one story at a time, which Mm -hmm. is Richard Wagamese. Wagamisi. So Richard Wagamisi, the late great uh, Indigenous author uh, and storyteller, talking about how we exist, like what I talked about, you know, we exist in each other's stories. And he, the way that he writes about story and talks about story is almost, story is the blood that flows between us that we share with one another. And that actually, once we hear one another's story, we cannot unhear it. And it actually makes us related it makes us bound and I think that, that is such a powerful thing that we can do for one another yes yeah, me too and it's what your book did for me Roselle especially the part where he says that we get bigger inside mm-hmm. that's how I felt there were parts that were heartbreaking and hard to read and I cried and I felt joy and I felt curious and I felt connected to you but ultimately I felt bigger inside I felt my own story get bigger so there was something beautiful about the experience that your book created inside of me Yeah. And I think it also really speaks to this idea of family secrets. I think it's Brene Brown, but they talk about how shame lives in the shadows. Yeah. And so I'm sure this was a process for you. And even for us in this podcast, you know, we're talking about things that sometimes maybe our parents aren't comfortable with, or we haven't even thought about clearing with them. And so I'm wondering about the journey of bringing some light to some of those family secrets and what that was like for you. True Scorpio by nature, I jumped first and thought later. Yep. <laughs> I mean, you, you you know through the book that I was raised Catholic. And so I always joke that we were taught to ask for forgiveness, not permission. Yes. And this idea of shame mm-hmm. is so powerful because done something bad, it's guilt. But yes. shame is just like, I am bad. Exactly. Yes. It's not, I've done something no, bad. It's that I, I am, am bad. Yeah. And so shame is so insidious because it grows in your cells and it grows in your bones and it grows in your being. And the more you fan that kind of belief, or more, the more you give it what it needs, which is the shadows, to your point, Cherise, it feeds on your fears. It feeds on your insecurities because the only way to drive out darkness is light. And so I'd come to a place kind of in my own journey and in my own integrative journey where I was starting to want to honor my voice. And because Mm -hmm. I had always been a writer, always written, always journaled, writing has always been the thing that 
allows me to express myself. Some people do art, some people do pottery. The human being is a creative being. We want to put into the world. It's the reason we want to have children. It's the reason why we make great, you know, pyramids. It's the reason for all of what we create. And so writing felt natural for me. And so last year, I kind of felt this real... Roselle, I think it's time. Like it almost felt like a heartbeat that was too loud and it was like bursting out of me. Mm-hmm. And I'd had this dreams, you know, for, for a couple of decades at this point, I want to put a book out into the world. I don't know what I wanted to say, but I just started writing and I worked with a writing coach because I'd never worked with a professional in the space. I'd always just written for myself or for like the, you know, the anonymous blog sphere in the early 2000s. <laughs> She said to me in our first meeting, I told her what I wanted to write. And she said, you will be done in three months. And I said, no chance am I going to be done in three months. But you know what? She was right. I woke up every morning, four or five o'clock, got my words down. It almost felt like I wasn't writing it. Like mm-hmm. there was this fountain coming out of me that needed to be put onto the paper. And I needed to just listen. I just needed to be the vessel through which it kind of came mm-hmm. forth a little bit, like the conduit. But I wrote it as I would write it with all of the raw details, with all of the rawness in it. And my Lindy, my, my writing coach, was, has been the only person who's ever read those versions of everything. And then I pulled back to a place mm. where I could then sharpen it and shape it from the healed, integrative place that I am in today, rather than the revenge laden or I want to do harm to someone else. This is not a tell-all. This is not meant to be an expose. This is my journey and my story. And I've been as conscious and careful as I could have been in order to honor that my story can exist while I honor that other stories are not mine to tell. And so those truths can exist. And so for so long, I think I was shaped by this idea that in order for this very particular sense of family or very particular sense of family honor, family dignity to remain intact, I have to dishonor my experience or my voice. Mm -hmm. And you'll see from the book, my personality doesn't allow for that. I'm, I'm I'm not somebody who does well with kind of being quiet about things. But I also don't ever want to be the person who raises my voice and the volume of it creates harm, right? And so two truths can coexist at the same time. And I also want to honor that much of what I write about, I write about from a very hopeful place in some ways because I don't do any of my writing from a place of revenge because I really have to become intentional about my why. The reason that the 10 years that I capture ended five years ago from where we are today in 2023 is because I want to honor that everybody in that book, including myself, the current versions of us are allowed to have our privacy and are allowed to have the hopefulness for good relations beyond just that storybook. And so I create that space in order to honor that future self that might have different ways of being than even where, you know, 2018 Roselle was. And maybe that by putting anything in the book to compromise that, I wouldn't be honoring who I am today or or honoring where other people are in their journeys today. Mm -hmm. But I got to tell you, like, shame follows because it is so insidious. I said it sits in your bones, it sits in your cells. And so while I might have worked on certain places to 
you know, shine a light on even just last week, the night before the book was about to be launched. And I've had so much beautiful feedback from advanced readers. I've had so much beautiful encouragement from loved ones and just championing. There was so much anxiety. Like I couldn't sleep the night before, not because I was excited, but I was terrified. I was terrified. What have I done? Have I actually done something to prove that I am, in fact, this horrible person Mm. that I fear through the whole book? And, you know, I, I really had to I really had to release some of that and sit with that anxiety, feel that anxiety. And then also know that, yeah, maybe there will be people who read this book and for whom it does solidify a version of me that they hold in their minds. And maybe there are people who will read this book and it will sully or change or demonize the thing that they know and see about me. Mm. And that's okay. I think that what this book has brought me in its journey and my integration is that's okay. I can hold enough space and grace for others to view me in ways that I don't necessarily view myself. Mm -hmm. And again, both those truths can coexist. This just speaks to, I think, how much healing work you've done on yourself because what that says to me is you found a place inside that you're okay with right because when we're okay in here outside can be uncertain people can have different ideas and perspectives and that might contradict ours but you know within I'm okay in here yeah also this is how we change the world yeah when we go inside and heal ourselves and hold that space for ourselves and can hold multiple truths about ourselves and about the world inside of ourselves It then creates the possibility for a world that can do the same. Yes. We are a revolution in our own healing. Oh, preach. You know, I love that. And it's so powerful, Carissa, that you said that because my, you know, professional landscape, and I think I shared this before we, you know, started recording today, but in my professional landscape for years, years, I've been saying on stages in front of at this point, I probably talked about a th- more than a thousand people with this phrase. And I've said, in order for us to make change outwards, we actually have to be willing to go inwards. Yes. And my friend's Actually doing it for myself was the most (laughs) difficult thing that I've ever undertaken. And very honestly, the last two months before the book came out, with regularity, I would go to my partner and I would go to my book coach and say, I'm not putting this book out. Uh, I've written it perfect. I'm done. That's all I needed to do. So I don't need to put it out. Or I would say, what business do I have putting a book out? Because I'm not important. I'm not a big author person. I don't have like a grand story. I don't have a grand life. Like I'm a small, normal human. And it's so fascinating to me because both of them, they were so just, they held that space to say, you know what? Love you. But also like, let's move on from this particular fear. (laughs) It's really fascinating to me that that shame follows you. Those voices that keep you guarded, those voices that keep you policed, those very early voices that might have shaped my understanding of how safe the world is to tell my story to, that... Uh, how good I would be as a person if I told those stories because only bad people tell secrets or, you know, it's shameful to tell secrets. That early programming really came to the surface, especially in the last two months. And I think that honoring that, even just recognizing, Carissa, what you said, I see you there. Mm -hmm. I see you, I honor you, 
And I don't think you're serving me anymore. You're trying to protect me. I get that. But I don't think that's what I need anymore. And so honoring you, seeing you there and choosing then to do the hard thing of, of growing past it. It's been a trip. It's been a mental trip for the last little while. Yeah. And your courage is contagious. That shame, which by the way, is the very lowest vibrational frequency emotion mm-hmm. on the spectrum. It is hell. It's darkness. That shame then attaches itself to all the fears. But what I love about what you shared is that you found community, you found relations with people who were your family now, Mm. your family, your sense of home, your sense of safety to bring your fears outward for them to also help you process through which, which ones are rational fears here? Those fears, no, those ones are old fears. We don't need to worry about this anymore. We need your book in the world. What I hear in your story too, is you're not trying to change the shame. Yeah. Like this is the part of acceptance, right? This is the both and, and this is, I feel like a lot of my work as a professional in this world is that because with some of the positivia culture, mm-hmm. it's very much like, oh, that's like a bad emotion. We're not going to allow that to be here. There's no room for that. But I hear you held space for that shame and you allowed it to hang out. We didn't do anything with it. It's just like, okay, you can exist here and I don't have to listen to it at the same time. Yeah. So yeah. I just want to honor that yeah. because that feels very aligned with how I approach emotions and healing yeah i'm so grateful that you mentioned actually i'm going to talk about both those words you mentioned positivia culture because i'm so allergic to this same toxic positivity (laughs) to this attitude of gratitude like it's very hippy because we are allowed to acknowledge the both ends we are allowed to acknowledge the good and the bad and they are allowed to sit side by side You know, I'll tell you a really funny story here. One of the most profound things in my own leadership journey in the professional world was doing a personality type test and it's called Strengths Finder. And it gives you, you know, your top five strengths and what are, what are you really good at and how do you actually get, you know, your stuff done in your life? And the top four were bang on, accurate, makes sense for every single space in my life, professional, personal, everything. Number five, friggin' hell was positivity and I nearly (laughs) threw the test away I did not care for it now I'm also stubborn so I want to dig in and understand like what the heck did you see in my responses that made you think positivity and I'm not a Pollyanna I'm not don't look at the bright like just look at the bright side of things or silver lining I believe in honoring the dark stuff so that Mm -hmm. we can be honest and then when you enjoy the good stuff it is that much more precious exactly because you know what the difficult stuff is but what it was actually is not that you are positive beyond you know what's actually real in front of you and you want to ignore reality it's that when you see a problem when you see something in front of you that's a barrier or a roadblock or a challenge one, one of my core strengths is that instead of being demoralized by it and being taken down by it, I see it almost as an opportunity to approach it from a different angle or a different perspective. Mm-hmm. That actually, I think, is what has allowed me to cultivate that space where complex, sometimes contradictory things yes. are allowed to share space in that same arena because I'm not committed to everything is sunshine mm-hmm. but I'm also not when I see a challenge or a roadblock committed to everything is doom and so because I sit on neither end of that spectrum positivity I think in the strength sense of the word allows me to see a challenge 
as an opportunity to change how I perceive the reality that's in front of me. Which I think is also a through line that I see through your story. At one point you say, over time, I've become too Canadian to ever return fully to the land that bore me. And having been born somewhere else, my Canadianness will always hold the turmeric hint of my Indian roots. Culturally, I often feel like a child of divorce. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering at this moment in your journey and in the essence of your being and who you are today, can you share with us a little bit about your journey of belonging mm-hmm. and the truest story or the truest thing about your own belonging? <sighs> wow, that's a fantastic question. And you know, it's so funny. I actually said that phrase that I feel like this child of divorce. I said it to a friend. We were walking out of a subway station. I know exactly which subway station. It was in downtown Toronto. And this was like 2009, 2010. So like, isn't it so fascinating that in some ways this story has been being shaped for that long? Like there's been the desire to express that I'm feeling disconnected or I'm feeling pulled into two separate pieces for so long and I've been trying to give it voice. Mm-hmm. And I think my own journey, like the truest thing that I know of my journey to belonging is that I had to first allow myself to belong to me. Yeah. Before I could create the opportunity for anything outside of myself to choose me or for me to belong to. Because, you know, I like that phrase that everywhere you go, there you are. So if I don't feel like I belong, I'm not going to feel like I belong anywhere. And so whether it's I go to India and I don't feel belong there, if I come home to Canada and I don't feel belong here, or if I go to, you know, I live now in Nova Scotia and I keep talking about going home to Alberta. And when I lived in Alberta, I talk about going home to Toronto. Home is always somewhere else, right? And this idea that you're in multiple places at multiple times or separated into different parts I think that in order for me to feel fully Canadian, I had to stop feeling, not stop feeling, but I had to recognize and release my shame about feeling Indian. Yeah. Those two things can exist. I can be fully Indian and I can be fully Canadian and they don't have to be separated out. And I remember being, you know, as a teenager, a young teenager, right up until my early 20s, so ashamed of being from India, so ashamed of being born there that I would tell people I was born here or I would blur the lines because I didn't trust that they would see me as Mm -hmm. belonging. If I told them the whole story, but the truth is that I did them a disservice in assuming what they would allow for based on my assumption that I didn't belong. And so not only did my shame hold me in two separate pieces in some ways, but it also held me from trusting and building trusting relationships outside of myself. The biggest truth that I know about my journey of belonging, and I don't want to say that that's a universal truth, but perhaps it is true for a lot of people, is that in order for us to find places that we know we belong, that we are certain of our place in it, is for us to both allow ourselves to belong to ourselves, the good parts and the bad parts, and then open ourselves up to those trusting people, the good parts and the bad parts, so that we know without a shadow of that shameful doubt that we do belong there, but then we also know that if we don't belong there, that those aren't the spaces that are meant for us. Yes. Yeah. Can you explain what it feels like when you're home in yourself? Like, where do you feel that in your body? 
Can you give us a, a practical way of how we know we're home in ourselves? <sighs> I don't know if everybody does this, but I talk to myself like all the live long day. This lady up here in my head is just chattering on and there's like conversations happening. And then sometimes one part of me gets distracted and goes out and we're like, where were we? And we like wind our way backwards and find the last thought to like, you know, how do we get down this rabbit hole? So I'm always chattering up in here. And I think it's become a practice over the last, I'd say, 15 to 20 years to cultivate the practice of also listening in there. But because I chatter so much in here, I had an underdeveloped practice of also listening in my own head to myself or to my body or to... Is my stomach feeling in knots? Is my stomach feeling released? Is my Are my legs ready to run? Because when I'm in a space where I don't feel safe, my legs get all tingly. But because I hadn't stopped to listen, I didn't know that that was a sign of I'm feeling unsafe here. You know, this is not me on a solo journey by myself. This has been years of really powerful, meaningful, therapeutic relationships where I've had the good grace of therapists who have led me through somatic therapy to know and learn my body, to know and learn my mind, and maybe trusting them with that. Because let me tell you, like the first, I want to say first session, but it's probably like the first five sessions, I would run out of those offices and I'd be like, that's it. I'm never going back. That woman is the devil. I need a pack pack of cigarettes and I'm never going back. But I kept going back. I kept showing up. And I think cultivating myself listening to myself honoring what I'm hearing has built trust over time that when I'm feeling something it's true when I'm thinking something it's true because my personal journey my lived experience had unfortunately created for me the practice of gaslighting my own knowledge yes Yes. our own wisdom our own bodies our own knowing yeah and so I was doing the job for my shame of keeping myself in check. The moment that I think I released that and said, no, I want to be on the side of me. Mm-hmm. I want to hold me as the core source of my own voice, allowed me then to start practicing that discipline of trusting and practicing the act of listening. And yes. honestly, I, I don't want it to ever sound like I have done it. I have won therapy. I have um, reached, you know, any kind of end of the journey because it is always actually a journey. And those, the oldest parts of us, the oldest, most sort of wounded parts of us will always be there. They might be smaller and they might have less oxygen given to them in big ways, But it's a constant opportunity for me to say, okay, am I honoring that? Am I continuing to build other maladaptive techniques? Because here's the other thing too, like who I am today is working for me today, but I don't want to be arrogant enough to assume that that's going to be working for me in five years or 10 years. And so the practice of releasing what isn't working for me will always be a practice, even as I change and grow into whatever future self comes. Yes, not only what do I need, but what do I need to let go of? And everything that you just shared there was so incredible. By the way, Sharice, her hands were up in the air throughout that entire response about your journey of therapy, the somatic therapy. What also stuck out to me is moving from mind to body. Mm -hmm. 
And I am wondering if for you, this is how it was for me. So I'm wondering if this is also the case for you that in integrating those personal and professional selves for which my professional self has thrived by me only using my mind, my mm-hmm. intellect, yeah. my intelligence, and my personal self was longing for wisdom, was longing for me to bring my full body and intuition and my heart and my soul and and all of me forward. And that was scary to do because my mind had been a safe place and I had been rewarded for the accolades of my mind. But bringing my whole self, my body, my mind, my spirit into my work has been terrifying. And was wondering if that resonated with you and if that's been part of the fear of that integration of personal and professional selves. Like a thousand percent, yes, what you know you've articulated like I have been rewarded for my mind like I don't know that there's any other tagline that I would put over my my career my academic career I have achieved uh, immense amount in a short time because like my biggest tool is is a razor sharp mind and that is beautiful and I love it and it also meant that it made it so much harder Mm -hmm. because those accolades and those sort of, you know, bravos and those cookies for using your sharp mind also bred for me, I think, perhaps not intentionally, but perhaps unintentionally a bit of cognitive arrogance that Mm -hmm. if I can think my way through this, I can find a way out of this suffering. I can find Mm -hmm. a way out of what is keeping me in this shameful prison. I'm just going to think it through. And (laughs) until it was just so clear that I had tried to think and knowing that I'm, I have a sharp mind and knowing that I can think my way through probably the majority of problems that are in front of me. And then now seeing that I had tried for years and years and years to figure my way out of this set of problems or this shamefulness or whatever, I had to be humble enough to say, Mm. I've tried. And me knowing that I'm sharp and smart would have found something by now. Mm -hmm. And if that thing that I know to work for 99% of other things isn't working maybe I need to try something else. And maybe I need to release the control that my mind allows me to have, right? Because my mind creates for me the illusion that I can control knowledge. I can control, to your point, wisdom. I can control what other people are thinking. I can control how everything is. And if I can control everything, like the master puppeteer that I am of the world around me, (laughs) I will keep myself safe. Bang, 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 bang. Yeah. And the vulnerability of letting our bodies in, letting our ancient wisdom in, allowing our core selves to emerge with knowledge that we do not have knowledge of. Yes. And saying that there is still truth that I don't have access to, but there are other parts of myself that do, and allowing the space for them to breathe, it's terrifying. That is not the life of control that I've so carefully built. And what I will share with you is that, you know, I I started my journey of therapy in 2005, 2004. So about 20 years ago at this point. So that's a 20-year journey. I started somatic therapy about 15 years ago. And then, you know, one year ago, I started writing this book. And every single sort of scaffold on that ladder has been an exercise in 
just how much the illusion of control permeates Mm -hmm. through everything. To go to therapy means allowing yourself to release a little bit of that control, maybe. And you know, the first time I, the first time I went to therapy, like the first, I want to say year, I would go and I would be like, okay, well, therapist wants me to have a problem. And in 45 minutes, we will have solved it. And I will have learned a lesson, tie a nice bow on top. And then I have one at this therapy session. Mm -hmm. You know what? I've had bad therapists over 20 years. There are some therapists who will reward that behavior. Yes. And so now when I have to go in and introduce myself to a new therapist, I will actually tell them, I will honestly give them the keys to say, I'm very smart. I will try and find a way to dance a circle around this session. I am great at bullshitting my way through you having to see the vulnerable parts of me. Can you call bullshit when you see that? And I will tell you, the best therapists in my life have called my bullshit and all the blessings of the world on them because that is what has allowed me to unlock, unlock, unlock in the same way that the book, because I now had this thing to put out into the world and I'm not going to put a thing out into the world that isn't true because I want to show something vulnerable. Okay, but how do I tell this truth? How do I, how do I make sure that everybody reading knows that I'm still wonderful while presenting this hard? <laughs> I'm a firm believer that two things can hold true at the same yeah. time. But I'm yeah. telling you, friends, those two things don't compute. I cannot <laughs> allow myself to be vulnerable, create space for me to be vulnerable, and try to control everybody's perspective of me. That is something that I had to learn in many different phases. And I I will say, I'll cap it off here with a very cool saying that somebody said to me recently. They said, what other people think of you is not your business. Yes. Right? And that is a really hard truth to acknowledge because... Well, we live in the realm of how powerful our brains are. You can look at a piece of work that I've done. You can look at a presentation that I've given. You can look at my resume. You can look at my accolades. And it will create for you the exact perception that I want you to have. Yes. And that is me controlling. And that is me not trusting in good relationship. Mm-hmm. But if I can honor that I am both my mind and all of these vulnerable heart space things and release the control that anybody else thinks about me, I think that's where my own journey of healing has taken me. Beautiful. The first thing I'm thinking here is this is the tricky part about intuition if we're not aware aware of our body, because staying in our mind is actually a form of dissociation. Mm. Yes. We all learned through trauma the mind is a safe place to exist when the body isn't safe to exist, right? And so intuition can be so muddled because it's a combination of our mind, our heart, and our gut. So if we're not embodied, we're actually not getting in touch with our true intuition because it lives in our body too. In in building trust with ourselves, we have to go into our body. Yes. And and with others, when you were sharing about needing to find a therapist that would call you on your shit, um, I was thinking also of you, sister, because when you're so brilliant, you need a therapist that is aligned with their own intuition that can uh-huh. sense when you are trying to outsmart them, yes. i.e. A, a therapist that can outsmart you by using that intuition to help yeah. bring you back to that place. So yes, I wanted to show that. Yeah. I, I see so many through lines Me between too. you, Roselle, and you, sister. Yeah, I agree. And I would get frustrated through that the therapeutic process because I was like, I don't want to be up here anymore, but I didn't know how to get down, right? And so that was a struggle with me with therapy too because I again I kept finding people that would stay in the cognitive with me and I'm like 
I know this isn't working or helping, but I didn't know how to get anywhere else, if that makes yes. sense. And you know, when I started somatic therapy about 15 years ago, I was actually completely dissociated from yeah. my body. And to your point, it is 100% a dissociation. So I, for example, could never tell you when I was hungry. I could yeah. never tell you when I had uh, menstrual cramps. So I couldn't tell you about my body because I completely shut it down. Mm-hmm. And in all honesty, the reason that I actually started entertaining the thought of somatic was because I started dating my partner and he started noticing. He was like, you don't know when you are hurt, like your body is in pain and you don't know that. Your body is tired and hungry and you don't know that. Like how? And so even in that step, even in that space was somebody reflecting that truth back at me because our brains will do such a great job of just shutting it down to that space of the mental and remove that physical. And so you're 100% right is that it's not that we haven't allowed ourselves to learn our body language. It's that so much of our life has created for us the opportunity for safety only in the mental space. Yes. Yes, beautifully said, yep. Yeah, And this is where I think creating systems with diversity and inclusion and by those people is so crucial because our systems have been built out of colonization, white men. That is a completely head space. There's no, there's no embodiment. And I also want to introduce or bring in the conversation of masculinity and femininity beyond gender, Mm -hmm. because... I believe that everything is supposed to be in balance. So I'm a Libra. My thing's the scale. Everything is in balance of yin and yang, which is the masculine and the feminine. And our world was built with so much yang, Mm -hmm. with so much masculinity, that what is happening, and part of my philosophy on what's happening in terms of the transformation of the world, is it is a revolution of humanity, but it, it is also a revolution of yin. It is asking and begging all of us to bring forward our beautiful, divine feminine yin power, yin energy, in order to bring more balance into our systems, in order to bring more balance into our world and to create a better future or a better world. I love that. So one of my favorite thinkers and, you know, scholars and poets, her name was Audre Lorde. And she has this quote where she says, men who are afraid to feel must keep women around to do their feeling for them while dismissing us for the same Mm -hmm. because we are supposedly inferior in capacity to feel deeply. Mm -hmm. But in this way, men deny themselves their own essential humanity. And so actually separating out, Carissa, what you've called the yin and the yang, the masculine and feminine energies, these energies of balance. Yes. Not of binary, of balance. Exactly, yes. And I think there is within each of us energies to balance out. But what we've created are cultures where we have demanded that Mm -hmm. certain people betray Mm -hmm. certain parts of their energies, oppress certain parts of their energies. And in doing that, we have actually stolen from ourselves. Yes. Because... I think that our systems have been created with the illusion of power, the illusion of power that I can betray all of who I am and run after this illusion of power. And that's going to make me the best. It's going to make me better. It's going to make me supreme. It's going to make me whatever. But that betrayal of yourself and your 
beautiful uh, existence that has all energies in balance, that betrayal, both at the individual level, at the communal level, at the cultural level, has permeated these systems where we then do violence to people who have less power from us. Yes, yes. And so, you know, Sharice, to your point, like creating spaces where multitude of stories can exist Mm -hmm. is a really powerful way in which we can disrupt this dominant narrative. Yep. That's the place I think that I understood most to say, okay, you know what? I can release this book into the world. It doesn't have to be that I'm an important person, that I'm a world thinker or any of that, because I believe in the democratizing power of storytelling. Yes. You telling your story, me telling my story, a normal human on the street telling their story and telling it to one another starts to remove that illusion of power that we have over one another. Can you share why you felt comfortable, why you felt safe to join us today and what it is about Therese and I or between us that you felt connected with? Yeah, you know, first of all, I love that it's two humans who have chosen to put something out into the world that possibly comes from the heartstring that binds the two of them together. Mm, And in that way, I think that there's such a beautiful exploration of the energy we can give out into the world if we Mm. choose to give out into the world in communal ways Mm. um, rather than in individualistic ways. Mm, That's no shade on anybody that's on a podcast solo. That is a commitment to recognizing that stories can have two versions. Mm-hmm. And even listening to you know previous episodes of your podcast and meeting you, what is so abundantly apparent is you're very different people. You have very different experiences and energies. And that doesn't mean that the two things can't sit side by side and create something beautiful. The name of the podcast, that space between, mm-hmm. for me, is always the most profound space to be able to put truth into. Mm. And the reason I say that is because my truth that exists in my head exists in an embodied way before I can give it language. But when I release it into the space between you and me, whether it's through a podcast, whether we're having a conversation over a beverage, wherever that space is that our truths get released into, then become a space from which somebody else or yourself can receive it talking about between us, there's also an honoring that that space is a meaningful third place where our truths can exist, our stories can exist with one another. Sometimes we might see reflections of ourselves in each other that we didn't expect, that stories that have nothing to do with us or don't sound like our own stories will resonate with us. And sometimes we will create more space and an abundance of space so that meaningful stories can exist even if they don't sound like one another's, right? And that space just makes itself bigger and bigger, like Richard Wagamisi says in his quote. And so the idea of relationship, which is one of my core fundamental values that we exist in our relationships, can only exist if we're willing to trust one another in that space that exists between us. Yes. Mm -hmm. That is so beautiful. Yeah, thank you for seeing us uh, Mm -hmm. and that space between us, but also for giving such beautiful language to that interconnectivity. And I don't know, that was just a very beautiful way of explaining how we hold ourselves and others. Mm -hmm. I just like how you spoke about how 
we see ourselves as a representation of ourselves. This is something that stood out to me in your story, Roselle, is that this is a, a term I learned from my mentor in Dow, but you have one foot in both worlds. Mm-hmm. And the beautiful part about yeah. that is you are the middle walker. Yeah. I am. And I think that is the bridge to connection is actually to be those middle walkers. Mm. That's just something mm. I really took from your story. But that is honestly, it's how I have come to know myself and come to recognize that that is my truest purpose in this world is to be that bridge between one and the other because that middle walker has both, I think, the benefit of being able to see and listen Mm. to both sides, but also perhaps the pain of knowing what it's like to not actually be on both sides. In my journey, that's kept me humble. In my journey, that's kept me acknowledging that I don't ever know everything. I don't ever know one or the other. It is my sort of philosophy to continue to bridge to continue to ask and I don't know how much you know you buy into sort of astrology and I don't know very much I know that I'm a Scorpio so I'm born in November so that's my sun sign and then my moon sign is a cancer my rising is a Pisces and so I'm all water and what does water do but it goes into the crack it goes into the space between Mm -hmm. that's right And so I'm all water. And that to me is very true for how I exist in the world. I see kind of the places that have cracks and I want to be able to fill them up and bridge that and create a wholeness that is bigger than myself. Near the end of the book, you write, standing in the presence of Dr. King, surrounded by his words on the walls that enveloped the memorial, I knew that my life's calling is to set small stones on a path forged by the footsteps of giants. And there were so many incredible themes throughout the book. We could have touched on any one of them and all of them and or had 15 different (laughs) recordings of this podcast. Things about being good versus bad, belonging, home, relationships with our parents, with our ancestors, seven generations back, seven generations forward, relations with our partners, our friends, intersectionality, shame, control, perfectionism, addiction, pleasing, curiosity, joy, integrating the parts of ourselves, and finally, the significance of our storytelling. So as our conversation comes to an end, I'm wondering if you can share with us what one thing you desire most to give to the world. Oh my. I mean, it's curious to me that the idea of giving something to the world is, it almost looks in two different ways. One is that there's something outside of myself that I leave the world with that benefits the world. And I don't know that I will ever know that. And Mm -hmm. I think it might land differently with different people. But I think the most profound thing that I can leave with the world is me having lived a life that is most integrated with myself, honest with my relations, and integrous of the trust that people put in me. That's a beautiful place then. Right back to the journey home, that everything we give Mm. to ourselves, we give to the world. Thank you for all that you shared today. I've been 
holding back my excitement in celebrating the fact that your book has become number one on Amazon in multiple categories. <laughs> and like I said, we could have touched on so many different themes throughout the book that were so beautifully written and truthfully written. Like, I mm -hmm. think you struck this amazing balance between those nuances or those things that were like a tension band. Yeah, the dichotomy existed in, in between the yeah. space of that tension band throughout the book. So mm -hmm. thank you for having the courage to put it out into the world. Thank you for your courage to tell your story. And thank you for sharing this powerful conversation with us between all of us. And then where can people find her? Is yes. The last question. How can people connect with you is the question. Yes. So I'm not, I'm not big uh, into social media, but you can certainly find me on Instagram. My handle is RM Gonsalves and you can see that in the show notes. I post a little bit on LinkedIn, but that's kind of in my professional life, which you're welcome to, to follow along with my website, which is rmgonsalves.com. And then The Ordinary Turned Precious, which I'm so proud, particularly I think for having hit number one in the biographies of immigrants category but yeah on amazon across the globe so you know with canadian amazon the dot com you can do it in australia or britain uh, and it's in it's in kindle format as well so i'm so grateful for you creating the space for us to have this chat it was such an honor and you're right i think we could do like 150 different conversations Absolutely. in different kind of alleyways <laughs> Thank you. Such an honor that you felt comfortable and you wanted to join us. That is probably the, the biggest compliment we could ever receive. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. And I'm sure Chris as yes, well. 100%. <laughs> thank you. Thank you both so much. Talk soon. Hi, my name is Bodhi. I hope you stay safe. Hi, my name is Gabe. I hope you have a great day. Audio production by Joel Vargasi at Lewis Studios.